get out your maps, get out your um, at-a-glance chart, and pull out also your keywords list. If you have all those things available, I would think those will be helpful for us as we're going to go through this. What I want to do is go through a quick review. You're laughing at me. What, you don't have any of those signs? Oh, shh. It's a secret, right? <laughs> all right. So, all right. Um, let's start with a review because we have not done this in a while. It's been several weeks we've not done that. And I want to start. I kind of thought we might have some new students at the beginning of this, and I wanted to make sure we got ourselves grounded. But we may not need to go through too much of this as, as in much detail. You guys will go through it quicker now that it's review, review. Um, let's start with the author. And, ha- and who is our author? It is Luke. And how do we know that? What were some of the pieces of that uh, process of figuring out who this author was that were insightful? In chapter 1, flip back to chapter 1 on your observations and look at verse 1. Yeah, he's talking to Theophilus. Right. Okay. So the first thing we saw is that he wrote to a person named uh, Theophilus. That's in one one, and the other really important clue in this was what what did we learn about this particular account in that verse one? It's the second one because he's he refers to a prior account, right? So all right. So since we know there's a prior account, and at this and what. What we had available to us was the name Theophilus. That's what we followed in order to try to track it back to see if we could find the first writing, right? Does, does that kind of make sense to you inductively? That's how you would do that? So we looked up Theophilus, and it takes us to what book? Luke. Okay, so in Luke, then, we, we can look in verses 1 through 4, and we see there that it's, it, be, it opens up telling us something I think that's kind of important about the purpose for Luke's writing to Theophilus there. Do you remember why, what he said in there about what, the reason he uh, was writing? In, in, Luke, in Luke. Actually, it's even also might even be in Luke 24, but go back to Luke 1. one to four. There you go. To give it a, an orderly and, a, and, a, and an exact account or an exact truth that he says that you might know the exact truth right so this account the prior account we're going to put on here written that he know exact truth okay and I think that's important because now we can know then if this is a part two, then he's following on with that same thought line, correct? However, in this particular book, there is, of course, its own specific author's purpose. And the way that we get to find, figuring out what an author's purpose is, is we start by, number one, identifying our literary style, right? You have to do that in order to know what you're looking at. So what is the literary style here? Okay, it's historical. You know, the, there's an interesting thing if you look at that word Theophilus in Greek, that means lover of God. Oh, I like that. Nice. Let's put that up here. Theo and Philus. 
Lover of God. Yeah, kind of like uh, Philadelphia sort of in, in there, huh? That's cool. The Philos, uh-huh, cool. All right, so it's a historical record. It's, uh, and it's not, only a, a histor- it's not just historical, but it's a record of accounts, right, or of events. Correct? So then what we needed to do next was look at major, uh, major key words. So in order to really define um, what your author's purpose is, the best way to do that is to go through an account. It's better if it's a, a short literary thing. You know, in what we, we've talked about this so many times, but in historical records, we don't do an overview and find all the book keywords and so forth and do it in that manner because historical records, it's too difficult to do that. Your short letters, is, that's what you do do with those. You read the, all three or four or five chapters or even 10 or 12, however many there are, and you get the flow of the whole thing and you pick out what major word seems to be flowing through the whole book. Uh, but with this, ooh, I'm sorry, but with this particular kind of literary style, it's better to go just event by event by event as you progress through your chapters and begin to watch for what seems to be the emphasis that rises to the surface. So as we go along then, what we did is we looked for key words in each of the chapters, and, they, and as we accumulated them, you start looking for the ones that, that keep popping up repeatedly then as you move along, right? So let's not list all the keywords, but let's list, make a list of the ones that we know have become dominant seemingly throughout the whole first uh, part one that we've done. What keywords have we found to be in this book? This, yes, apostles. Thank you. Eh. And the word, and also disciples. I almost didn't know how to divide those up, and I don't know how you all have been doing it. But it's been a little bit complicated. It's just you do the best you can, and what you have to do is be able to discern though when it's speaking of the twelve versus the rest, and that's all you really need to to identify distinctively. Okay, what else? Very good. And there you go. You have to, not just the Holy Spirit, but all, the, the triune God. Boy, I tell you, I'm sorry. This is, this is making a lot of noise. Wow. I don't know where to stand to make it stop making that noise. I'm sorry. It's, it's probably all the m- marbles in my head. <laughs> when I turn my head, it's, it's making noise. Thank you. It could, it could be coming from here. Who knows? Okay, thank you, Craig. Okay, so we have, we have the Trinity, God, Father, uh, Son, and Holy Spirit. And tell me what you, at this point, know about the distinction of those three. How does that play out in this book so far? Okay, it seems to be, the, as far as the active role in the present church system, that's exactly right. It, be, it has come to the surface because he is the one which is, 
empowering. He is the one that seems to be sending them out. He is the one that keeps speaking to them. Have any of you been kind of surprised by how much Holy Spirit impression there is in this particular book? I mean, we all know it was the birthing of the church, but it seems like all of a sudden, particularly this week's homework where he said, and the Holy Spirit said to them, set him apart that he might serve me. And I'm like, wow, that's the first time I've ever really paid attention to that. That was cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Yes, it is. Actually, I agree. And I think that one of the um, interesting things has been how we've seen the Holy Spirit impressing upon people, right? How many how many things can you think of right now? Just name a few where the spirit has spoken and given them some kind of insight. Ananias and Sapphira, where Peter knew. Is that what you were talking about? Well, that's, that's a good example, too, yeah. Oh, I thought that's what you were speaking of. After Paul's conversion, and he's in Damascus. And oh, yes. Oh, yeah, that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where, and, where he goes to another Ananias. And, yeah, they both had their own visions, and the Lord instructed them through the power of the Spirit. Uh-huh. Oh, you were going to say the same one. Good. Okay. Well, they're both good. They're both. It's I to me. There's a repeatedness in this book of how the spirit seems to be impressing things upon these people and guiding them. Yes. Yes. Isn't that so true? And I, I think this book can really help us develop that, understand that insight a little bit better. And I think studying it helps to also raise it more to the surface in our awareness level. Kind of just being aware of the fact that, oh my gosh, we really do have a helper that is ever present and he guides us and he helps us. I even think back um, that I found was interesting was in chapter 1 before the falling of the Holy Spirit, and yet the Holy Spirit was still working because when Peter and the 12 were in the upper room, it was actually the 11, and they needed the 12th, and the Holy Spirit then brought to their remembrance things and helped them to uh, uh, impart in them an impression of what was needful for that person's qualifications, and then they put them uh, out before the Lord and then prayed and so forth. It was it was really good. Okay, so in this particular book, we do see distinctive um, roles of this triune God being presented to us. And if we're very careful to pay attention and, yes, make lists, and I know that's extra work, but it's, it's good for us to do that, those lists are going to help us further develop our doctrinal understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church and how each one has really a distinctive quality about them and how they relate to the church. They each have different roles, exactly. And yet it doesn't, doesn't mean a different God. Exactly, no. No, because Jesus is God, right? God spoke the word and Jesus and the Holy Spirit is God. And, and I think this week's, uh, particular mention where he says and set apart for me the one who I'm going to call him and earlier when Paul had his conversion on the Damascus road who appeared to him Jesus and what did Jesus do and exactly what the spirit did 
set apart you he is being set apart for me right so jesus says it then the holy spirit says it so it's like they're in oneness in their um in their work and in their purpose in the life of of god's chosen all right so um the apostles the disciples god jesus holy spirit what are some other keywords very very briefly let's just mention some here Okay, and tell me who's who yelled that one out. Me. Thank you, James. Who? How? Tell me how. Um, how helpful did you find as time as you've had some time to really think on this? How helpful was it for us to go back and look at Hebrew baptism and understand that better? Did that? Have you guys been finding that now you're looking at things and going, "Oh, I get it. Oh, oh yeah, I get it." Where before we were struggling, there was like a tug of war in our hearts about, well, why is he saying he has to do this ritual when we know it's by faith, right, that you are saved? And yet now knowing the historical uh, purpose for baptism in their culture, and um, you tell me this, when a person who was Hebrew one day, right, meets Jesus, comes into faith, why is it that they did require them to Go and be baptized. Why was that in, in Acts 2, 38 and 39? Why, why did uh, Peter say, if you go and be baptized, then you will receive the Holy Spirit? What was that exercise about, basically? Well, we certainly know even that they got the pickling, right? That they actually received the Holy Spirit. But why did he say, go get wet? Well, do you remember the teaching that we did on the on the Jewish baptism? What were some of the reasons for Jewish baptism? Say it again. Yes, okay. One of them was cleansing. There you go. That one is actually more important in the eyes of a Jew, would you not say? Because think of this. Do you remember the, the federal headship that's taught in Romans of you're either in Adam or you are in Christ? I shouldn't move too much. I'll stand still. If I, don't, if I don't move too much, Lois, this thing doesn't squeak at me too bad. I just have to stand still. It's really hard for me. <laughs> anyway, so if you're either in Adam or you're in Christ, right? So think of that in, the, in, in relationship to Jewish baptism and Hebrews of that day. Much of what they did for baptism was done as a public identification marker, right? It was their way of, of expressing to the world or making a statement. This is now who you are to view me as. This is how you are now to see me as. I'm telling you, I'm making a declaration to you that this is me now, right? So when Jesus was baptized, he came to that baptismal waters uh, known as Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary. But when he left there, he was known as this is my son whom God is well pleased. Prior to that, there was not a public announcement that he was God's son. Now he's God's son, right? Plus, getting the Holy Spirit was the ultimate in fellowship with God. Absolutely. Right. Yes. 
Yes, he does. So there's that quality, uh, which is what I think uh, Martha was bringing up about the cleansing quality of it. But then on the other side of it is the identification. Why do you think that God might require, even today, of you and I to make a public uh, confession and be baptized? What does that do for you and I even today? Okay, so it it is a public declaration, is it not? You might you might go to church that morning with all your friends. You come into faith, and then you come back later. You do this baptism, and when you do that, you're standing up before them and saying, "Look, guys, I'm no longer that guy. I'm now this guy. I'm no longer in Adam. I are, I am now in Christ. I am no longer for these people during the days of the writing of Acts. I am no longer a Jew. I am now a Christian." Do you see the public identity marker? So now, if you were Jewish and you said you had put your faith on Jesus, right, but you refused to get baptized, what would that say? Can you think of any verses that talk about he who will confess me before men, I will do what? I will confess you before the Father. So do you think part in part this was also saying to these people who in this early church, look, you're going to have to make a stand. You're going to have to make a public declaration. I am no longer affiliated with the Jewish system. Do you remember uh, the book of Hebrews? What was the book of Hebrews written for? They kept wanting to revert back to Judaism and to that old system, and they basically wanted to walk the fence because why? They were being persecuted, and within their own family units, there would be this pressure. I have known this even today, even though we don't have the same exact scenario, but even today there are people who come into their Christian faith, they they have a baptism, they make a public confession, but then they walk the fence. And, of course, they're pretty miserable if they actually have the Holy Spirit. If they don't have the Holy Spirit, it's, it's a game they play, and they do it pretty well for a while. But people who actually have the Holy Spirit are pretty miserable because on the one hand, they're still trying to hang with their old friends and go do their old things. But on the other hand, they know they shouldn't and they're supposed to be this new being, this new creature, this new creation in Christ Jesus. And they're having a hard time playing that balancing, right? So eventually, those who are truly born again, have received the Spirit, will finally make that full move. Some people do it drastically. It's immediate. But for some people, it's more gradual. So we can, we, you know, we're not, we're not going to be legalistic about how quickly we expect people to make that move. And I don't even know that we can definitively put a time on it. But there should be a limited amount of time. There should be some dis- distinctive changes. Would you not say that? If, you, if a person has truly come into faith, would, would you begin to see in their lives changes from the old man to the new? You should. Even in my life, and I've, I've told you guys before, my life, I grew up a Christian. So I was pretty much a good girl. On the surface, I looked. I could pass for a Christian anywhere, right? But I would, there were many very specific things that were not in place in my life prior to my salvation that there are in my life now after salvation. Specifically, it's my commitment to the Word of God, to the fellowship of the brethren, the priority of being in uh, God's work in God's ministry of some kind. So that where before I was a Christian and I showed up to church, particularly at Easter and Christmas and, you know, those big things. And I would show up whenever there was crisis in my life, I'd run to the church. But 
once I actually came into faith, I was in church regularly, and I was committed to a Bible study. I found a Bible study group, and I got plugged in pretty quickly. Um, I mean, it was a gradual thing, but, but it wasn't long. It was, it was weeks, not years, right? And, as, and very, very quickly, I was plugged in. I was teaching Sunday school. I was going to a Bible study. I was singing in the choir, which they pay me now not to do. <laughs> they found out I don't sing. Let's just, you know, they relegated me to the kitchen um, <laughs> for a while, but that was okay. Um, but I think there's this, dra- so to me, what I wanted to mention about the baptism thing is that what we've seen in this book so far is that baptism had a very specific thing. Yes, it was for cleansing. It was for symbolically the, the picture of the identity of being wa- our sins being washed away and so forth. But also, it was also a challenge in a way to these Jewish people in that moment. Are you willing to identify with Christ? Are you willing to forsake the old and move into the new, which is exactly what Hebrews writes about. The whole book is all about pressing in to this new and letting go of the old. Don't, if you keep going back, it says in Hebrews, it, it says that if you keep going back in Hebrews, then you keep crucifying the Christ over and over. Because you, if you go back and continue to give the sacrifices at the altar, you're saying that Christ didn't do what he did once for all, right? So would you all agree then that that's part of the identity, this baptism requirement that we seem to be seeing in in Acts, which is a transitional book. We're going from the old system of Judaism into a new thing called Christianity. And in Christianity, Christ requires a public identity with him. That you must be, um, what is the right word? I don't want to say brave, but you need to be bold. And to make a declaration that I belong to Christ. Um, Can any of you remember back in your early life or your early walk how difficult that really was sometimes? That, you know, you'd hang out with your friends, the old group, and you kind of kept it quiet that you were really hanging with the Christians on Sunday mornings. And you didn't really want them to know at first, maybe. I mean, it could have been a slow process for you to until you finally you just said, you know what? I am a Christian. And you get bold. And God gives you that boldness. And all of a sudden, your life totally does change, and you start moving away from those old friends and moving into a new, a new life. Um, all right, so that's the, that's the word. I don't know what we're going to do about this. This is sad. I hope it's not. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, for those of you listening on the recording, we're having difficulties with the mic. <laughs> it's really being noisy today. If I if I could sit and not move, I might do better. But anyway, all right. So so key, other keywords. Now let's go on with the other keywords. We also know what some of just list some. We're not going to go into details. Witness. The witness that you shall be my witnesses. Well, well, except it, can't, it has to be recorded for the iPod. That's why it, it's going through the mic. Yeah. But thank you. That was a good idea. But Okay, so witnesses, what else? Miracles, wonders. Miracles, once. I, and you know what I did? I marked the word signs predominantly, and then anytime I see a sign, I use that same symbol, even if it doesn't say a sign or a witness. 
or a, or a, sim, or a um, miracle or a wonder. But signs, wonders, and miracles should be marked because how often are they coming up in this book? All over the, almost with, almost with every transition. Why do you think they were so dominant in the early church? They did need a sign because what was this thing called the church? It was, it was the fulfillment of, right. But it was new, right? It was a new thing. And so in order to have this new thing, that needed to be accompanied because anytime a sign or wonder or miracle was done that was actually from the Lord, what was it an indication of? That it was God in it. And that was how they had their confirmation. And that's why God, through the prophets, even said, when the Holy Spirit falls, you will see them speaking uh, in tongues, and, you will, and they, will, they will declare the great wonders of God. And, um, uh, he, I mean, Joel gave the signs that they would know when it came. Otherwise, how would they have known it even came, right? Because you don't see the Spirit. It just it occurs, and it's a, it's a quiet whisper in our hearts, and there it is. Um, so the, the signs that are being accompanying all these healings that are accompanying this, as we progress through this book, these were ways to declare God is in this so that the people were, had affirmation that it was of God. Okay. All right. So we have wonders, we have witness, Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles, two other people groups that are very dominant in this. And where do we see Jews predominantly in this book thus far? The first 12 chapters, right? Then we hit third, uh, or the first, not 12 chapters, the first um, nine chapters. And then when we hit Paul's conversion in chapter nine, then we move into start starting to see the Gentiles come. And there's like an interim period of few chapters where it's bouncing back and forth. And pretty soon we're going to have full out Gentiles in here. There, uh, we talked about that a few weeks ago. The Jews did not consider them Jewish because they, yeah, kind of. So they were in that in-between hole, which made them a distinctive group, which God identified and then said, they, you will preach in these places. That's why it showed that progression because... What was really cool was when we went back and looked at the woman at the well and how Jesus approached her, and he asked her some questions, and she knew some things about this coming Christ and about the prophet. He will tell us all things and so forth. So she knew about his coming, and she knew his name, Messiah the Christ. Um, So she knew that, and yet then there was also a disagreement about where should we worship. See, because the pollution of the Samaritans is that they were doing their worshiping outside of Jerusalem. That for them. That's true. I never thought about that. That's a good contrast. You're a good one to bring up. Did y'all follow that? That there's this contrast with the woman who had the, the demon-possessed daughter, and when uh, she was begging Jesus to heal the daughter, and Jesus says, I did not come for, for uh, I came for the lost sheep of Israel is what he said. He didn't say, I didn't come for you. He just said, I came for them. And then she said, but her reply was, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. And, that, and he says, I've not seen such great faith in all of Israel. And he said that twice, and both times it was about Gentiles. Yes. Once 
That's exactly right. So that's then in contrast to what he did with the woman at the well where he approached her in a way where she is Jewish. She has Jewish blood in her, and he recognized that, but she had a perversion of her religion, which was basically a heresy, what we would call heresy, where it's a blending. It's like Kabbalah, which is Jewish mysticism. It's a mixture of things. Uh, well, they had, they had a little bit of Jewishness, but then they also had some other stuff that they had mixed in. So, yes, very good. So Jews and Gentiles. What are some other key words, guys? Think of them real quick. The church, congregation. What else? Faith and believing. Pardon? Prayer. Excellent one. Prayer. The gospel. Thank you. I was hoping somebody would get around to that one. The good news, the gospel, the word of God, however you want to mark those, right? I think so, because in reality, what the, how, it's how I'm marking it. You might want to mark it separately. You can mark them this, but it always gets, they really are, because what he does is he uses the Old Testament uh, scriptures and then brings you forward into the news. Isn't that what we saw him do again even this week, where he, he spoke to the Jews about their history and then brought them forward and said, this is Jesus. So you went from the Old Testament scriptures to Jesus, which is the gospel. So they really do blend. So I've been marking them one and the same. So that's fine. Um, okay, in persecution, right? Uh, false prophets is another one that should be also dominant on your thing. Um, I think that's pretty good. So you got to triune God, you got Jews and Gentiles, you've got those signs, wonders, miracles, witnesses, the good news, the word of God, the gospel. You have saved, believed, or faith. Those are all synonymous. Uh, baptism or baptized. And in that, I, I don't know how you all are marking it separately, but what I do is when I, when I m- mentions being baptized and it's speaking about Holy Spirit pickling, Right, I put a little Holy Spirit sign with the word baptized. If it just means water baptism, I just give it the regular baptism. So I have like a little blue, um, almost looks like a bowl of water that I do like that. And then when it's but when it's pickling, I add the spirit above it. Okay, and that way I can mark it initially this way, and then once I figure out which one it is, I can go back and add my my Holy Spirit symbol to it. Well, I do as we go along, kind of. And that's one of them that I think helped. Because sometimes you're not sure. It's kind of like with the Trinity. Sometimes you're not sure, is this speaking about God, Jesus, or the Holy Spirit, right? Or is it not really being specific? It's just meaning, you know. So how do you mark those? Sometimes I just kind of pencil them or circle them at first and then go back later and mark them more clearly after I figure out which one it is. It's, it's kind of tricky on occasion. But most of them, they're not that hard. That one is a good one. All right, author's purpose then for this book. Let's do that. Knowing all the key words, knowing what's unfolding, these are events that are recorded, and they're events about what? The birthing of the church. That's exactly right. So it's the birthing of the church, and then what follows it? The spread of the gospel, how it spreads out. So... In, in essence, you're, it's a historical record of the birthing of the church and the spreading of the gospel. What uh, chapter and verse do we have on that for, as a key verse? <coughs> uh-huh. 
Yes, one eight. And what does it say there? Okay, so let's put this on here. Author's purpose. And I know this is all review, but it really is good to go back at this point and do it because now you've got so much foundation built, it's starting to make sense to you better. And all these th- things will start to connect in your brain. You'll, you'll anchor them in there. Okay. Okay, to historically record... Number one, birthing of the church, which basically happens in chapter one and two. (laughs) And then after that, it's the spread of the gospel. Okay. All right. Then uh, there are some analytical subjects. truths that we also are drawing out of this, and I want to make sure just to remind you about them so that you don't forget we're working on those as well as we go through this. Um, One is our doctrines of the triune God, which we talked about earlier, the relationship of each one of those to the church. So that's one analytical thing that you should be also pulling out that really kind of goes along with the author's purpose. He wants us to see the birthing of the church and the spreading of the gospel, but secondarily, I, I see that God also wants us to understand the relationship of God the Father to this thing called the church, the relationship of, of the Holy Spirit to the church, and the relationship of Jesus to, the, to his church, right? So as we're, as we're moving through this, we should be making those three lists and trying to glean out analytically what we can to discern about those doctrinal truths. Uh, so the, the second one is not only about the Trinity himself, but is the second one is doctrines about what? Well, we did that one. We just talked about that. Doctrines of the church itself, right? Because we talked, remember I told you and gave you some, uh, a whole lesson on um, that uh, assignment my daughter had through DTS, where she had to evaluate her church and say, are these things active and present? And is it a healthy church that you are in? And so what we, we did is we kind of went back through as a way of review, then and looked at all the things that we're seeing presented in each of these chapters that shows us not didn't doesn't directly make a statement, but it demonstrates to us what God wants in a healthy church and how God, because of how God's relating to us, it indicates he approves of things and he disapproves of others, right? So we go through there. We're, I'm just going to listen for you. Doctrines of the church that we can be looking for. Teachings of sound biblical doctrines. Church leadership and structure. We've seen that in, in here. Church discipline. We've definitely seen that. And we see to get another one again here in this week's lesson, right, where he does a, a stern rebuke. Uh, evangelism and how that might play out. We see a really great demonstration of Paul and how he handles evangelism in these two chapters, 13 and 14. The difference, did you all notice the difference between how he handles chapter 13 and what he does in chapter 14 in presenting his gospel message to two different people groups? He handles them differently. Uh, discipleship to include exhortation and edification. And the last one we should be watching for is worship itself. What, how do we see the people in the early church worshiping God, both, both collectively and personally, as a congregation and, and in an intimate way? So those are some things that we should be uh, laying out and seeing. So I'm going to put on here real quick for us. Analytical topics that are 
have to do with the author's purpose also. One is uh, the triune God. Each of their, their roles and then uh, the church itself as a doctrine. And remember I told you, and I still do have that, uh, Diane, if you're interested, I'll bring it back in now. That book that I have, the Lockery book, All the Doctrines of the Bible. And one of them is a whole section on all the doctrines about church. And it's, it's very in-depth. It's really good. Huh? Yeah, yeah, it's, well, it's a tiny print. Yeah, it can, it can be overwhelming a little bit. Okay, so now we're ready. With that laid down again as a refresher, I hope that, that wasn't too boring for you, but I do think it's important to go back through and say, okay, this is the foundation upon which we are bouncing off of this insight of understanding these particular specific um, points that are most important. You know, who is the author? Who is the recipient? What is the author's purpose? What are the key subjects that are going to be brought up that we need to be focusing on? And when you go down to the analytical topics, be sure not to miss the, the qualities of the triune God and what qualities there are about the church that are being taught to us, so that we will glean those as children of God. Okay, so let's go to Acts 13 now, and let's just do our paragraph titles. I let that dry out. I know. I hear you, Heinz. <laughs> All right. Let me get my chapter open. And you might want to have your map ready, too, as we do this, because there's going to be some opportunity to look at your maps and make sure we're all following this along. How many of you had difficulty with Antioch, figuring out which one was speaking of? Did you do okay with that? Good. Okay. Great. I'm glad to hear that. Until now, yeah. I didn't know that until we lived over there. And then, and then I went, oh, there's more than one. Because I got really confused because one, at one time we were over there, we were in study. The only Antioch I was aware of was the one in Turkey, which is the place where Christians are first called Christians, right? The one in Pisidian, right, Antioch. And um, so then when I went in, I did a Bible study. It was talking about Antioch, and I couldn't figure out how come the location was wrong you know, and I finally I figured it out. There were two Antiochs. <laughs> you just have to know which one is speaking of and figure that part out. Okay, so let's go to the paragraph things. What do we see going on in Acts chapter 13? What is your, your uh, feel about this particular chapter on the whole? What's going on here? Okay, there's a, the, it, and how does it start out in that beginning? How does he get called to do this? I love that verse. I love that. Set apart for me. Me who? Me, the Holy Spirit. Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. I love that. That is probably the most precious verse to me uh, as far as really declaring this, this interactive relationship that we have uh, being seen to us in the book of Acts about the Holy Spirit and how he relates to us. And I, I can't say that I've ever really thought of it that quite that crystallized before, uh, this study. So this is really good. clearly demonstrates that the Holy Spirit is a person. Yes. Because a person, a, a force wouldn't speak right. Yeah, well, it's, it's, a, it's a personage. Yeah, I know, it's in spirit, but yes. He does, and, he's, and it's distinctive, and the role is distinctive from the Father and the Son, and yet they are one. 
That is the mystery that just blows us away. We all love. Okay, verses 1 through 3 then, what do we see going on there? How did you title that particular? Did you all do your themes? Oh, thank you. Thank you. You guys are so good. What is your theme for verses 1 through 3? Okay, Paul and Barnabas set apart. That's good. Barnabas and Saul set apart. For what? For the work to which they have been called, right? I added that on there for, for, for work called to. Because did you notice on the chart I, I gave to you? The little, the little guys with their, holding their instruction book there in front of them. Do you see them? Aren't they cute? And it says go. And then where do you see the next time you see them is where? On your chart. The one I printed for you. At the bottom of chapter 14, right? So what does that tell you? They went and then they finished, right? And I liked it at the end because now it looks like they're giving their report. (laughs) First they have their their to-go marching orders and now they're giving their report. I just thought that was the cutest little cartoon, didn't you? (laughs) Visualized it very well, don't you think? (laughs) Okay, so they're set apart for the work by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to add that as just a symbolic note there for you for the work to which he had called them. And 4 to 12 then, what happens next? Yes, they do. So location-wise, where did we go in chapter 4? Or in verse 4, 4 to 12? He goes to Cyprus. So how, how did you title that then? And who does the preaching? Uh-huh. So all of a sudden it starts out that it's Barnabas and Saul. Then it does a flip and it's Paul preaches. Okay, he preaches at Cyprus. And there's a lot of information in there, though. He, he, I love this part of the storyline. What, what was going on with this guy named Alumas? I looked it up, the pronunciation. Alumas. Mm-hmm. Okay, so tell me what you know about him. He was... He was a magician, number one. And there's another way of translating that. It can be the word wise man. And one of the commentaries took me back to Matthew and talked about the wise men who traveled. But, so it kind of affiliated in that way. But then other places it used the word sorcerer, right? Right? So, but the most important, more than even the title of magician and sorcerer, or sorcerer as his identifying markers, it's what Paul says to him. He is a Jewish false prophet, and we know that because what, is, what does um, Paul speak to him? It's starting in verse 8 and 9, I think it is. I loved in 9, in verse 9, what does Paul do? S- fixes his eyes on him. Can you just see it right now? That teacher boring a hole right through your <laughs> Like, okay, you, I've got you pegged. And what did he say about him? Yes, so... And I looked up that word fraud. That fraud meant trickery. So that might be where the idea of the sorcery and the magician thing came in because he may have been doing, you know, magical kinds of trickery things to make them look like he was doing signs and wonders, right? But he wasn't. Okay, so he's full of deceit and fraud. And he, his name initially in verse 6 is what? 
bar Jesus. So Paul preaches this. I'm going to put on here just a few things. His name is bar Jesus. And what does that mean? Does anybody know? Son of Jesus. Isn't that weird? In other words, he definitely is full of trickery and deceit, is he not, with that name? <laughs> trickery and deceit. Um, and we see that in verse 10. His name was Bar Jesus, was found in verse, uh, let me look, 8, right? Verse 8? Verse six. Oh, 6, sorry. I don't know why I have eight on here. Okay. And what was it that he did that really got Paul angry at him, where he fixed his gaze upon him? What had he done? Go ahead, Diane. Okay. Uh, there was a proconsul. Uh-huh. Um, Tertius Paulus. Uh-huh. Yeah. And when he was listening to Paul preach, I have a feeling this bar Jesus fellow decided that we need to stop this right now mm-hmm. before he loses his control. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting because the, the relationship there, it does kind of support the idea of the wise men because, you know, the pro-counsel, did anybody look that up to see what that was, what that definition was about who is a pro-counsel or what is he? What did you find, Janice? Wow. Okay. So he is an appointed official of a governmental role. And therefore, does it make sense that the magician, if he was a magi-type magician, like some of the commentaries say, if, if he held that position, does it make sense in the Roman era that he would have one of those guys hanging around? When you think about Darius and, and um, Nebuchadnezzar, they all had these magicians and conjurers and so forth, these wise men that they all consulted as part of their entourage. So for him to have this man coming along with him and as the proconsul would go, this, this magician would go with him, right? Elamas would go with him. So they're affiliated in that way politically, basically, is how they started out. But the proconsul wanted to hear the word of God. And then uh, Bar-Jesus says, no. So he's trying to, to dissuade him from that, right? Turn him away from the faith that says in verse 8. So he's full of trickery and deceit. He tried to um, um, turn. turn. Sorry, try to turn pro-counsel away from faith. That was verse 8, is that correct? Okay, so he tried to turn the pro-counsel. And so then what else does he call him? In verse 10, I love this. You are the son of the devil. Now, is, that, is there a contrast there? Do you see a contrast of that, son of the devil, with what? With the son of Jesus, bar, bar Jesus. <coughs> son of Jesus, and he says son of devil in verse 10. Calls him the son of the devil. <coughs> and he's also what? Enemy of all right. If you're not getting the picture that he's 
a bad guy. He just goes on. You are, you're full of deceit and fraud. You are, full, you are the son of the devil. You are an enemy of all righteousness. And then he gives him a command and he says, I want you to stop doing something. What? Yeah. There is a straight way. There is a gospel of truth. Stop perverting it. Stop messing with it. Stop deceiving people by twisting it all up and making it say something it doesn't say, right? He's saying, this is the truth. Keep it straight. And so he's a cease-making crooked, the straight ways of the Lord. Now, do you think there's a comparison with what Paul says to this, this magician and what Peter said earlier? And go back to chapter 8. Do you remember chapter 8? When Peter was speaking to who? Do you remember the other magician that was mentioned back in chapter 8? Simon the magician. And when, when Peter rebuked him, what did he say of him? He called him also what? Son of the devil, right? And he says, you're full of wickedness. You're, you have no part in this way. You have, I mean, he went, his rebuke is, can be exactly lined up with what Peter said. It is a rebuke, a rebuke, a rebuke, a rebuke, and both of them are being told that they basically do not belong to God, that, they are, they, that their way is crooked and perverted. It's deceitful. So if you want to compare it with Simon in chapter 8, verses 19 to 23, you can go back and look at that as, a, as not a contrast but as a comparative where Peter did it, now Paul does it. What does that tell us about the gospel presentation when we're out sharing the gospel. You may have to sometimes rebuke people, especially if you're in a group setting and there's a, there's a, there's a, what do you call it? Something in the spoke, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, an agitator in the group, so to speak, a person who just wants to stir things up. I remember early in my, uh, years when I didn't know what I was doing at all. And I would try to share the gospel with my girlfriend and, um, her husband would stick in all kinds of little, you know, he would take his jabs. Every time I would say something, he'd come back. And because I didn't know enough yet, I didn't really have a good grip on the gospel message fully. I just knew I believed on Jesus and I knew that God's word was true, but I didn't know all the you know, all the way of giving an account for it or saying, oh, but that's what you see in John. Oh, no, no, no. You have to go to Ephesians. Remember, in Ephesians it says this. I mean, I couldn't do that then. And he would throw out things, yeah, buts, right? And that's kind of what this guy here was doing. He was trying to to sway him away from that um, uh, belief on Jesus Christ. So what we can see then through this demonstration here is when the gospel is being presented, even by powerful people like Paul, they had opposition, right? And there would be two kinds of responses that can happen to the gospel message. So, and which are? Belief or unbelief, saved or not saved. And this is another one of those demonstrations. And I believe it's exactly why back in chapter 8, Simon the magician back there was also demonstrated. Although many people went, they made a public confession that they believed they were, they got wet, right? But when it came time for the Holy Spirit to fall and and, uh, uh, John and, um, who was it came with John? can't remember, but they came and laid hands on them and prayed for them that they would, Peter, that's what it was, Peter and John, they came and laid hands on them. He does, he does exactly the same thing. Then he turns to the, to the one in the group and singles him out and says, look, 
In a way, he was, it was a warning, was it not? That if you don't put your faith on this, this is where you're going to remain is in this state of unbelief and condemnation. And he, although he doesn't necessarily use those specific words, I mean, if you, if you were called the son of the devil, I think you get it, right? Right? <laughs> okay. So that's in that one. The Holy Spirit then, he tries to sway him away, and he, he calls him the son of the devil. He calls him an enemy of all righteousness. And um, he tried to turn him. So, and that's going to be contrasted then with those who, be, who will believe, right? And who ultimately did believe and what caused him to believe? The proconsul actually did get one over, which is awesome. And why, how, how did that transpire? He heard the message, right? What does it tell us about his response to the message? He believed, but what did he, what is, the, I know, but it, it even talks about, um, thank you. He was amazed at the teaching that he heard of Jesus. Does that also contrast with what we saw back with Simon, the magician? What was he amazed at? All the power and the wonders. He wanted the power to impart the Holy Spirit in the way that the apostles were doing. So he was all tied up in the, the wonders of it, the, the excitement, the magical part of it, which is, you know, exactly up his alley because he was a magician, right? So he was, he was enthralled by that. But this man, the proconsul, he was, he was totally entranced and totally taken in by the gospel message itself. And then what did God do? Concerning the uh, magician, what happened to him? Paul made this proclamation against him, and then he became blinded for a period of time, right? And when the, when the proconsul saw this, what happened? It just affirmed that he was, what he was already believing, what he was already amazed at, what he was already in love with was this message about this man, Jesus, who died for his sins. He, he was... He was in love with the message of the gospel and in love with God the Father himself and the gift of the Son that that God had sent. And then when God gave him a sign that this message was truly from him through a wonder, he believed. He put his faith on him. And have we seen that as a pattern in this book of the gospel presented, a sign or a wonder accompanying to confirm it, and then salvation comes as a result over and over. And yet, some believe, but... Others don't. Do you remember early in chapter 3, I think it was, where the lame man was healed, and they stood right before these, these leaders of the people, the Jewish leaders, and they, they still refused. And they, and they actually stood there and said, well, how are we going to convince the people? Because they all see it. It's right before us. You know, we can't deny it. I'm like, duh, so why aren't you believing it, right? Isn't that an amazing thought? Have you had that experience? where there are things that you've shared with people and it should be just as clear as a bell to them and yet their hearts are cold. Hardened hearts. Does that give us any kind of encouragement then as we look at this for our personal experiences as we're sharing? Does it kind of give you a little bit of encouragement to want to just keep on trying because there's some out there who will believe and the ones who won't, they're not your 
they're not your responsibility. Your responsibility is simply to give the gospel out, right? To share what you know about Jesus and let the result of that work be in the hands of God. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts and brings people around. You can't make them. Boy, I wish we could, but you can't. I wish you could. All right, so Acts 13. Now, now, how did you then title this book? Uh, let's see, 4 to 12. Let's see, did I get the whole thing? I didn't. Let's, let's go um, 13 to 39. What was the next paragraph? He was preaching at Cyprus. Now where is he preaching? Preaching at the synagogue at Mm-hmm, that's right. At... And, and you can say of Pisidian. Okay. So there's Antioch of Pisidian. This one was Cyprus. Okay. So he's now moved locations, moved to another city. Did you all follow that on your map then? You started over here uh, just above Jerusalem up in this place called Antioch, which is in Syria. He moved down and to the, to the uh, port city where he caught a ship came around and he went to first to Cyprus, right? And now he's going um, up to Antioch of Yikes, sorry. Antioch of Pisidian, which is basically almost right in the middle of Turkey, present-day Turkey. It's in the heart of it. it when you come to that coastline area uh, along where Antalya is, and then you go straight up and you see that Antioch of Pisidian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he hit a couple of other places. It talks about what? Let's see. We see Antioch of Pisidian. Paul pre. Oh, this is the one where he preaches to who? When he goes to Pisidian, Antioch of Pisidian, what does he preach? He goes to the synagogue, says so to the Jews. And so when he preaches to the Jews, what does he preach to them? Their history. And it was really interesting, wasn't it? It was kind of detailed, but it was fun to go back through. Have we kind of seen a pattern of this actually previous to this? Who else preached the history of Israel? Peter and Stephen. Stephen did a really big rendition on that one, didn't he? He gave a full-out historical record. So if you ever want a really nice synoptic account of the history of Israel, you can go into Acts and pull them out of here. They're great. Okay, so he preached... um, the history of Israel's God and, and the fulfillment then, right, of a, pro, of a promise that God made to Israel as a nation. And what was that promise that was fulfilled? The Messiah, the Savior, and he named him Jesus. He calls him by name. So that is really cool. So he preaches um, the history of Israel. I actually put this down in such a way that it shows the focus on God because he really is teaching about the history of Israel's God is really more the better way of sitting, I think, and the fulfillment of God's promise. I think I spelled that wrong. Of a Savior. And he calls him by name, and he names him Jesus. All right, so that's in verse 20. I picked 23 out for for my reference on that. And then in order to um, go to the next verse, 
We see him quote, quoting a verse. Did you find out where that verse was quoted from? Let me look. Hold on a second. We're in 40. We're in 42 and 43. We're, no, we're in 40 to 41. I'm sorry. 40 to 41. Where he makes, he says, therefore do what? In verse 40. Take heed. Now, I broke this up to another paragraph because I felt like the first part was about him preaching to them, but then he follows it on with the preaching with what? Uh, Therefore, and he says what to them? Take heed. That's the word I was looking for. Take heed. He's warning them, and he's warning them about what? Yeah, that if they don't believe what's going to come on them. Just like it did before. Do you remember what happened to them when they got exiled to Babylon? It was judgment, right? And it was judgment because why? They didn't keep the law and they weren't believing God. They weren't obeying God. They weren't truly in a relationship with God, right? And so judgment came because of disobedience and disbelief, correct? So... The Chaldeans, right. And did you notice in here, he doesn't mention the Chaldeans as part of the, quote, part of the quote that he mentioned. He skipped the Chaldeans because his message was not the Chaldeans are coming again, but what? Judgment, Judgment will come. Because what is this? Now, this is a subliminal analytical thing. What is this telling us then about God in the New Testament compared to the old? He is the same God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's saying to them, look, what God did before, he will, he will also do again. Judgment will come for anyone who will not believe and obey God. And so he quotes Habakkuk as an example because, first of all, they would fully and full well remember. The reason they're actually under Roman uh, guardianship right now is still because of that fallout from that disobedience, Right? They never did come back and get full reign and control over their own people and their own land. They went from Babylon to Medo-Persia to Greece to Rome. And and in every one of those generations, those kingdoms ruled over Israel. Although they were allowed to go back to their, their homeland, they were allowed to go back and rebuild their temple. And Jesus came during those days when that temple was fully functioning. But yet they did not have full control. The Romans were over them. They had a thumb on them, right? And here what... Peter does, or I'm sorry, Paul, what Paul does here is he quotes an old verse to say, remember when God judged us for disobedience and unbelief? And and he's basically warning them. So I wanted to make that a separate statement where he preaches at Antioch the history of Israel's God and the fulfillment of God's promise of a Savior. And he's saying there, then there's a warning. And that's in 40 and 41. And he warns them of unbelief. And disobedience. Did you all look at that very thoroughly? Or was that one harder for you to figure out? That wasn't... If you go... I think it was Habakkuk 1. uh, 1.5 is the verse he quotes. Yeah. So if you didn't, it it was subliminal. But again, it's what... You remember how I said we're looking for some of these subliminal things, analytical topics. One is the triune God, right? Well, here is one of those moments where we see... Triune God, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it's taught very clearly if you, if you get it. And these people, do you think they got it? Being Jewish and understanding their history and knowing where they are in that moment? I bet they got it fully. 
but they didn't like it, right? And they still reject it. Isn't that an amazing thing? You can, lay, you can lay something out on the table in front of someone and say, see this piece of paper, this one is red, this one is yellow. And they say, and they say hand me the red paper and they'll hand you the yellow one. They, you know, they don't believe you. <laughs> they don't care that you told them which was which. They don't want to hear it. So it's just plain old re- rebellion and disbelief. So Paul warns of judgment for unbelief. Okay? And then 42 to 52, we do what? What's going on in the last part of it? This is kind of the turning point, isn't it? Okay. Well, yeah, so in 42 and 43, they're God-fearing people are going, yes, we want to hear more, we want to hear more. But what happened then in 44 to 47? Yeah. Yeah, so it looks like they got trumped. You know, you guys know that phraseology. It looks like there were a few people who were wanting to hear more and were wanting to believe and maybe did. They still could have. They still could have. Those who wanted to believe, the ones who were called God-fearing, doesn't mean that they lost their opportunity. They still could have very well come into faith. It just doesn't address that because the author's purpose here is to show you what happened that causes Paul to make a new path, right? What happens because of the account that's given to us here? What does Paul do? He supports, yes, he does. You're absolutely right, Carol. So there are some who obviously did believe, right? Yes, right. 42 and 43, there were some who did did believe. They were called God-fearing people, and they were hungry for the word. They wanted to hear more about this fulfillment of God's prophecy to Israel, this man named Jesus. They wanted to hear it. But what happened then is by the time the next Sabbath comes around, the word got out. Uh, Paul's going to be back again. He's going to teach us some more. And so what happens? The naysayers and, the, and these who are the sons of the devil, as, as the magician was, has stirred up the crowds and stirred up the, the animosity. And what was the motivation that's given to us here about the Jew? It doesn't say Jewish leaders, but I really think that's what it is implying. Is these, Yes, again, it's jealousy. It's exactly what you see so often happen with these Jewish leaders. They are jealous of this message because why, why do you think they're jealous? Well, okay, absolutely. Yeah, they've turned to a new messenger, a new rabbi, so to speak, in their mind. And this new rabbi being Paul is now drawing the crowds to himself, and they're losing their audience, and they don't like that. They also don't like the message because, obviously, they are not believing it, right? All right, so, in, so you can t- if you wanted to, you can title uh, 42 and 43 with one title, which is the God-fearing people, right? Beg to hear more. And 44 to 47 can be a contrast, but what happened? Many Jews did what? They were rejecting it, right? It says they were filled with jealousy. They began contradicting the things spoken by Paul, and they were doing what? Did you see the word? Blaspheming. That is amazing. Blaspheming. And so 
if it, he actually goes down in verse 46 and he says, uh, as a result of this, and starting in 46, Paul says, then what is he going to do? Yeah, because you, he says it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. But, and the, the word but's not there, I'm just throwing it in there. But since you repudiated it, since you rejected it, since you turned away from it, since you don't want to have anything to do with it, then that basically judges you. He's condemning them in that statement. And also to the Gentile. That's exactly right. Yes, yes, exactly. Necessary because why? Why do you think it's necessary for the gospel to go first to the Gentiles? Why was Paul doing it in that manner? Why was he going to them first? Exactly. For one thing, there is there still a promise of, of God's redemption for Israel, the nation, that they are still waiting for and looking for? Yes. And so, in part, it was done uh, to them first for that reason. What else? There you go. The covenant specifically was to them, and therefore it had to be presented to them first. The prom- they are the root. In Romans chapter 11, it talks about it, that they are the root of this foundation that we put our faith on. So Jesus will come to fulfill his promises. So he had to go to there to them first. Secondly, it was the way that Paul was also to be rejected. I got to give you that one just kind of up front. If Paul had not gone to them first and been rejected so that he was then free to move on to the Gentiles and say, fine, if you don't want it, I'll go to people who do want it. Right. And actually, we see this a lot in Scripture, if you pay attention to it. It's in a lot of places in Scripture where it says that it will come then to the Gentiles because of the rejection of the Jews. But Paul had to go to, the, to his own people first. And once they rejected him, basically that gave him permission. It freed him that he could then go to the Gentiles with a clear conscience. We know Paul's, Paul's heart on this, so don't we? How many times does Paul... Speak about his own Jewish men. Do you remember anything special about what he said? Yeah. If I could, I would die and actually go to hell if some of them would be saved. But he knows that's not possible. That's how much he loved the Jewish people. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So... That section there, 44 to 47, can show then that rejection. And then what we see then follows that um, at the end, 48 to 52, what happens? He takes the gospel where? To the Gentiles. And what do they do with it? They're thrilled. They believe. Isn't that interesting? So again, you have another contrast. You could mark it in the aisle of your observation worksheet that the Jews were rejecting. Therefore, Paul goes to the Gentiles, right? And they were believing. All right. So, and if you don't want to break it down into all of those little segments, you could actually do uh, 42 to 52 and just say uh, the Jewish... Leaders blaspheme God's word, so Paul took it to the Gentiles. That would work, too. Um, I'm going to write this here. Uh, Jewish men blasphemed God's word and and rejected it, repudiated it. 
So now Paul goes to the Gentiles. Goes to Gentiles. All right, so that covers that chapter there. Now, we, what time is it? We got a lot of time. I'm so sorry about this microphone thing. It's just driving me crazy. I can't move even. It's hard for me to think when my feet aren't moving. <laughs> my brain doesn't work. I'm a kinetic learner and thinker. <laughs> okay, Acts 14. Any other uh, insights or points or think, questions that you have about that chapter 14 before we move on? Or 13, rather, I mean. You all are quiet. It was pretty simple, wasn't it? I mean, it was, I'm so glad because I didn't have much time to do a lot of hardcore study this week, so it was good for me. Yes? The last verse. I don't know if the rest of y'all feel this way, but I had shared with us one that was shot down, and I felt like there was blood all over the floor. Mine. No. They, after this is over, the disciples were continually filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Even after this situation of the... I know. It's pretty hard to believe, but what, what do you think gives them the joy... Even though they're being rejected. Yeah. There you go. It has to be grounded somehow in a knowledge that they did what they were called to do. And that they don't feel a personal responsibility for the outcome. They just do their part and then they walk away. It's basically speaking, specifically it would be Paul and Barnabas is included in that, but the other disciples who would have been there supporting him as well. So the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I think it's talking about all of them, including Paul and Barnabas who presented the gospel and some of them rejected it. They also are continually filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. Uh, One thing I did note, was one of my commentaries said that word continually is not in some of the um, uh, manuscripts. So it could just be reading that the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I don't know if that matters, but I thought I'd mention it. Yeah, that actually takes us, it takes us back to that, that, was it in chapter 3 where the um, Sanhedrin were together and they were saying that you can, don't oppose it if it's from God, you may find yourself fighting against God, right? But, and if it's from God, it's going to succeed anyway, you know, you can't stop it. I don't, can't remember which chapter we were in when we saw that one. Uh, chapter 5, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. That's in chapter 5, verse 39. I remember that. That's, that's exactly right. Holy Spirit, help me remember that one. Yes. Right, right. Yeah. I think you are absolutely right, Heinz. And Diane, too. It's exactly right. I am so bad at that. I feel so 
crushed and defeated often when I share with people and they won't hear, especially when it's people you really, really love and you just really want them to come to faith. Right. So you're either appointed or you're not. <laughs> yeah, I am. Oh, this is miserable. We're going to have to fix this problem. Oh, good. I'm reporting this. <laughs> Watch out. I am so sorry. I don't know what to do about this. I hope, do you think this is going to be on the mic itself? I mean, will it be on the recording? Poor people are not going to want to listen to this one. They're going to be going, no, thank you. That's enough to drive you crazy. Yeah. Uh, okay, now what were we talking about? We were talking about. Yes. There you go, the appointed part of it, which takes it out of our hand and it puts it into the sovereignty of God's realm. It is of the Lord, and it's by faith, and it's the individuals. Okay, see if that works for a little bit. Don't move. I can't write on the board and do this, but I suppose it won't matter if I write on the board, right? I'll give you the chart later if I stand really... I didn't move. There it goes. I know. I'm so sorry. This is horrible. I'm about ready to just say, let's skip this recording altogether. I know. Is it, you guys are doing okay. All right. I'm, an, I'm a nervous wreck, but you're doing all right. Okay. They can listen to it. No, we're not faking it, right? Okay. Really, doctor, the baby was sick this morning. She had 103. <laughs> When they show up, it's fine. What's wrong with it, right? <laughs> okay. All right, so let's move into chapter 14. Good, a good follow-on, and it's really great to see almost a contrast between uh, the, the presentation of the gospel in, in 13 and what, what Paul does in 14. And again, it's another one of those subliminal lessons. It doesn't tell us, pay attention here, here's a switch, you need to you know, take notes, any of that, but you do. It's analytical observation of how he handles the gospel message for each of the different kinds of groups. And I do think most of us are aware of that and we know that, but sometimes people who are more trained in a um, methodology of, of gospel presentation, you tend to revert back to your method. And that is, that is really not the best way to do it. I think the method is helpful to, to instruct you on certain verses and, you know, you learn your way kind of through the, the Word of God yourself. But if you try to present the gospel to every person in the same way, you're, you're not going to be as effective as you will be if you identify your marker, your, your target audience, and speak to them, Right? So let's move into 14. What do we see in verses 1 through 7? Where has Paul moved to? He was at, a, at a, now he's gone to Iconium, right? And he, act, he went back to the synagogue again. So he was rejected before. Now he goes to the Iconium, to the synagogue again, right? But what happens with the Jews? Again, on the whole... They're disbelieving, right? A large number of them did believe. There's a large number of people who believe both of Jews and of Greeks. 
Right. Okay. So what we see then in both. Right. And guess who gets the upper hand? The ones who are mean and spirited and don't want the gospel. They don't want to just reject it. They don't want anyone else to have it either. Right. I think I think that's definitely a, a, a truthful statement for even us today. Right. A lot of people. Um, if you think about the way uh, religions are handled, even in the news and the media and so forth, you can talk about any other religion and nobody cares. And they'll be gracious and they'll even agree with you sometimes on things that are totally weird, right? But if you mention the name Jesus Christ and Christianity and the Bible and salvation through faith in him and eternal life with with. Uh, uh, with Jesus Christ, you start ruffling their feathers and they will shut you down. And then before you know it, you next thing you turn around, they're coming after your business. They're coming, they're coming to look at your IRS statements. They're coming after your kid's school system. They're coming after whatever they can. They will actually attack you and destroy you. They don't, they're not good enough to just say, I don't like that message and I don't agree with it. But they also don't want you to even survive. <laughs> right? It's amazing. It's exactly what we see here with this one. Paul preaches at Iconium. Yes, there are some who believe, both of Jews and Gentiles. But the one who gets the upper hand in the event that's, you know, remember we're looking at an event. It's a historical record. And what Paul is trying, or the, Luke is trying to do is to show us the, the essential qualities of truth about spreading the gospel, about the birthing of the church, and about a Christian's life. If you're going to be in faith as a Christian, these are the things that you are going to need to be aware of and understand that... I, I know. I wish that it weren't making all these noises. Okay. Um, all right. So, I forgot, my, I forgot what I was saying. I can't even think. Huh? Who took the... Oh, yeah. So who took... Thank you. Somebody was listening. Good job. You get a star for the day, Brenda. Nice work. Woohoo! It's keeping you awake. That's awesome. Okay. So... So the ones that get the upper hand, it's the same scenario that we had in chapter 14. The ones who took the upper hand and, and caused enough dis- disturbance that they chased Paul out of a- Antioch at Pisidian. Now he's in Iconium. So at Iconium has the same problem again. Some want to believe, some are happy with the message, but the ones who aren't, they're not happy with just disbelieving. They also got to now stir up trouble, right? And we're going to see this as, as it progresses. So what happens with Paul then um, in Iconium? What happens to him? He literally gets stoned. And to the point that apparently he's unconscious, knocked out or something, at least temporarily. And then when uh, the brethren gather him to themselves, he recovers, right? And then what does he do? Yeah. Okay, so he goes, they became aware. I thought, it, wait a second, let me look. They were plotting to do that. You're right. It, I saw the word stone on my keyword list here and it caught my attention. Yeah. They were going to mistreat him and stone him and he got word of it at Iconium and so he left Iconium. That's correct. I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know. Okay. 
But then there, so he goes from Iconium and they, he escapes. He goes to these other cities um, and the surrounding areas. And then he ends up at Lystra, right? And there what happens at Lystra? He heals another man who has faith. I think it's really cool because, again, you see that stare. But this time it's a good stare, right? He fixes his eyes upon this man, right? He sees that he has faith to be made well, right? Verse 9. He fixes his gaze on him, and he has seen that he had faith to be made well. And then with a loud voice, he says, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up, and he began to walk. I think it's really funny how every time he does a healing of a lame person, they leap. Yeah. <laughs> they are so excited that they can. Yes, it made me think of, what was that movie um, where the guy is crippled, and he takes on Avatar? Avatar takes on a body, and when he goes into the avatar body, he, the first thing he does, they can't keep him on the gurney, right, in the medical room. He jumps to his feet and takes off running. Do you remember, does anybody watch that movie? It was a crazy movie, but it's pretty good graphics. But he, it's the same idea. He couldn't walk, now he can, and he's so excited, you cannot contain him. The doctors kept saying, take it easy, take it easy. They couldn't keep him down. He got up, and he took off running, and he gets out into the cornfield, and he stands there and wiggles his toes in the, in the soil. He's so excited. That's what you see here in all of these occurrences where lame men are made to walk. They're so excited. All right. So he goes to Lystra. The man is healed. Um, and what happens? This is an interesting one. Yeah. Because what kind of people is he dealing with here? Pagans. So he's entered, he left the Jews, now he's among the pagan world, and they have a faith system that, that honored Zeus and who was the other one? Hermes, right? And so they determined that Paul and Barnabas were basically reincarnations of these two gods because of this miraculous power and healing, and they want to now sacrifice to them, right? All right, so what happens? Okay, got it. I think it's a good example to see, and it just popped up here, Paul and Barnabas, is even though they know what's happening, their fear of the Lord not to have this happen. They have approached the people and said, stop what you're doing. Right. But what a great opportunity, too, of, of actually giving a testimony, because what happens because of that event, you know, what could have happened is he could have preached to these pagan worshipers, the guy could have been healed, and everything would have been great for a while. They could have left. And then as they were gone for a while, pretty soon this, this thought system would have come up anyway, right, about Zeus and Hermes. And instead it happened immediately, which gave Paul an opportunity to put a squash to it, right? He could put a kibosh on it. So what does he do as his testimony to help them? Does he go back to the prophets and the law? And teach them about the his, history of Israel and how God did the mighty deeds and how, how all these deeds are of the Lord because remember the days when he led us out by a mighty hand and with great wonders. He doesn't do that, does he? It would have been totally meaningless. So what does he do? Yeah. Isn't that cool? That makes you think of what book in our Bible? Who, who covers that? Genesis. Genesis. And in the New Testament, 
John, well, kind of, John, but Romans. How about Romans where he says they have a depraved mind and they're trying to worship the, all, the, the creation rather than the creator. And so God in the book of Romans tells us that creation itself declares who God is. Even to men who've never heard the gospel message, they can look around at nature and be made aware that there is a God and a creator of it and, there, and thereby can come to know him. Right? So therefore, he says in Romans, men are without excuse. There is no excuse for people to not understand that a God created this and it is the God who created all this that they are to worship. Not the creation, but the creator of it. Right? And so in this case, that's exactly what he does. He says, why are you doing this? And he gets all upset. He begins to preach the gospel to them again, but he does it from a mindset that they will comprehend and understand because it is exactly what they are doing. They are worshiping creation, not the creator in this system that they're in, this worship system that they've been living in. Okay, so we see that he preaches to pagan worshipers there in in 8 to 18. In 19 to 23, what does Paul do? What happens there? I think this is blowing my mind. Where is he again in these verses? He's at Lystra, correct? L-Y-S-T-R-A. Now what happens? Yeah. Remember those guys back in Iconium who didn't like him very much? They hunt him down. And if go to your map and look at this. They actually had a, quite a distance to travel. They came a long way. That is vengeance. What is that telling you and I about as we witness in the world, what kind of um, determination can our enemies have against us? Think about the things that are happening in our, in our, um, just on the news and so forth of these people that own bakery shops and won't, you know, they make a stand for their faith. And instead of just being let alone, you know, let the, let the public determine whether they want to support them or not. No, the government steps in. People begin to, to protest. They're so venomous against them that they absolutely insist that no one else support them. They end up losing their business. That is exactly the scenario we see here. It's still happening today. Paul left Iconium, went all the way down to Lystra. They chased him. They followed him. And it wasn't just from Iconium. It was from two cities, Antioch and Iconium. So from the two previous towns, they started communicating with one another, and they said, let's go get them. They formed a posse, and they went looking for them, right? You know, that's a good point, Martha. You could almost do a contrast and show what happened to Paul here with those vicious Jewish oppressors with what Paul did. Really good. I didn't catch that one. That was good. And it was interesting that the same thing with the eyesight that happened to Paul, he also put on the That's true. I hadn't thought of that. Dude, you guys are doing good. See, I was too tired. I wasn't thinking. That's a good one. That was a good one. The eyesight, did you catch what she said about the eyesight? It's also, there, there's a contrast there. You know, when Paul came into faith, what did God do to him? blinded him until until he he came uh through those days and then had um simon or simeon simon who came in and ananias 
That's who it was, Ananias. Thank you. Yeah. So he was blinded, and now here Paul then turns around and blinds someone else. That's really interesting. Good. Good contrasts and comparisons there. So Paul preaches at Lystra. Paul fixed his gaze on a man. He's been healed. He goes then down to Iconium and Antioch. They're looking for him. They come to pursue him, right? And so what does he do? Where does he go next? In 20. He goes down to Derby. The next day, he went away with Barnabas to Derby. And after they had preached the gospel to that city, what did they do? Okay, tell me that this isn't so. He did what? Where did he go back to? He just turned around and went right back into the lion's den. What is he thinking, right? So, do we get a message out of this as? Christians today are there are there time you know we see the the first principle Heinz brought up where you're to dust kick the dust from your the soles of your feet right and leave I know it's falling off my ear okay so you're to kick the dust from your feet and go right but but then then there's another contrast here here where yeah he's kind of kicked the dust from his feet in regards to teaching it to the Jews who are rejecting it But yet, what does he have concern for? The ones that did come into faith. Boy, isn't he. So he turns around and goes right back into the lion's den that he came out of where they tried to stone him. And they they go back and they uh, and he ministers then to those who did come into faith. So he left a little trail of believers along the way, even with the opposition coming against him. Right now he goes back and he hits every one of those pla- places. He moves back. He returns to Lystra, then to Iconium, and then back to Antioch. And once he leaves uh, Antioch, then he goes where in verse twenty four to twenty eight. To per, how about Perga? He goes first to he and he preaches there. Did you notice? It says he preaches the word at Perga, and then he returns to the other Antioch, the one in Syria where he started from. Right, and uh, basically when he gets back there, what does he do? He gives. He gives a report. I love that. How often have we had missionaries leave out of here and then come back and we get to hear their reports of the things that they're doing and the successes and, and the difficulties? Yes, Heinz. The other thing they were doing is church building where they appointed elders so that the organization Exactly. So there's that additional doctrinal teaching that's it's just hinted at or alluded to. It's not the super central message, but what we do see is that they made sure once they established believers that then they also helped them establish some kind of orderliness to their worship and to their systems. That they had a leader in place, they had servants in place, and they, and they were um, uh, basically established a, a good church home. So what do you want to title this chapter? Yeah, isn't that the truth? Paul got stoned. <laughs> okay, yeah, I like that. I I like the fact that he he's, he even though there was persecution, he just continued on, right? 
Paul preaches in Iconium, in Lystra, in Derby, and Perga, and he returns home to report to the disciples. That's kind of, in essence, what happened. But a good title for it could be anything along those lines, as long as you get the message. I put a secondary title there, too, which was the faith of the Gentiles, which is 27. Yes. Well, you know what? I did on my on my at a glance chart. I actually have three titles for each of the chapters because it's like three different. There's, you know, in chapter thirteen, it, it talks about the Holy Spirit sent Barnabas and Saul out. Now you could just leave it at that, but then there's additional to that. He preaches at Cyprus, at Pamphylia, at Antioch, and at Pisidian, and the word spread and persecution followed. I mean, so all those things happen is starting in chapter 13. Then in 14, Paul preaches in Iconium, in Lystra, in Derby, and Perga. So we just showed that, right, each of those locations. And that would be following the geographical pattern of if you wanted to have titles that just shows your geographical movement of this uh, spreading of the gospel. But secondarily in it, it t- shows that he is stoned, and yet he perseveres in preaching and giving exhortation. So it shows an additional thing about church and about our responsibility to these believers that we bring into faith, right? That we need to nurture them. And then we show that he returns home to report to the disciples. And to me, when it comes to church um, structure, there needs to be accountability. If we're going to send people out and support them, there needs to be accountability on their part to come back and report to us. How has things been going and what did, you know, when we supported you in this, what was the result? You know, it. The other thing, I mean, underlying or overarching, however you want to look at messages to this is the never lost sight of a commission. Abs, I love that. Very good. So you could, yeah, you could almost do 13 and 14 and. Uh, Another title for that, besides they never lost hope and they never lost sight of their mission, that makes you think about what kind of mission was this? How do we call this 13 and 14? Paul's what? Paul's first missionary journey. So you could actually call 13 and 14, and that's what I put. I put one of my titles is first missionary journey begins, first journey ends. (laughs) So you could title that. Yes, awesome, exactly. The thing that impressed me is, I mean, all the obstacles, stolen, whatever, never stop focusing on the mission. Yes. And that, I think, should keep us... Don't you think that's a, that's a quality of, that quality of perseverance is, a, is an absolute obvious indication of the Holy Spirit's presence in a person's life? Because no matter what the obstacles are, no matter how hard life gets, no matter what they're doing, I... I Thinking also of you, Linda, with all the things that you've been through, and yet you you keep coming back and being so faithful. And you had some really big struggles between your husband's passing and your health issues, and I don't know what else. I'm sure there's much more that we don't know. But yet, the faithful ones who you know have the Holy Spirit, nothing stops them from coming into God's house and being with God's people and learning His Word and being committed to the things that are of value to them, which is God. Right? Which is Christ, which is relationship. Well, I want to tell you, like, we keep bringing up the fact that he was stoned, but that took up two verses. I know it. I know, but it really impresses us greatly. <laughs> well, like, if it were like me, that would be like my primary focus. Like, I know, 
exactly. I got stoned. I had a bruise here and a bruise here and a bruise here. <laughs> exactly. And I passed out, and then they had to take me by ambulance. And <laughs> I know. It's so true. It is so true. Instead, what is Paul focuses on? And he went on and he started preaching again and more people got saved and the gospel continued to spread. So that is exactly right. We do focus on the wrong things. We are such wimps in America. We're soft. We are soft. All right. Well, that was great, guys. Thank you for being so gracious to me. I, I got so little done this week. I did get through the homework, but barely. It was a, it was a tough lesson to get through for me. So thank you. And we will... Come back next week, and hopefully we'll have a better mic.